full scope, podcast with two guys in their 20s, giving perspective on the games that we love, the headlines in pop culture, and the meaning behind it all. I'm your host, Wenza Burns, along with my counter, Press Avon Morris. How's it going, man? It's going pretty good, man. How's everything? Going pretty good. And um, tonight we got a, another back show. Um, we're going to get into a couple of NBA topics, um, a, a, along with uh, a quick thought on Julie Edelman's uh, retirement from, uh, from the Patriots, and also uh, a couple of album reviews. In the second half, we're going to have our um, Silence of the Lamb uh, of the Lambs review. To start off with um, just thoughts on Steph Curry's major accomplishment of um, passing Will Chamberlain as the all-time scoring leader for the Warriors. Um, this past Monday night, he was able to do this in a 53-point performance and 9-point win against the Nuggets. Um, the previous record was 17,783 points, and now it's Steph at 17,818. Um, you know, he was just spectacular in every category the entire night. 14 of 24 from the field, um, 10 of 18 from the perimeter, and 15 of 16 from the free throw line. Um, he also had a, a major performance last night, 42 points against the Thunder, and, and also 11 made threes. Um, he, he's looking as good as he has, has ever looked and even said that he's feeling the best um, that he's felt in a long time. But um, what are your thoughts on kind of just the significance of this personal accomplishment for Seattle and also how he's, you know, just always been that consistent offensive presence for Golden State? What a career so far. And I think he still has yeah. a, a, a long, a long career to go. A lot more to go. Long, <laughs> long way to go. I, I love the way, I, I think we talked about this in the beginning of the year. I want to see his leadership. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a leader, we know, well, as a, sh- a shooter and a scorer, we know he's prolific. He can shoot anywhere behind a three-point line. He can finish. He can cross somebody up, ask Chris Paul. I mean, the guy can do it all. And one thing I haven't seen him do was lead a basketball team. When Clay Thompson's out, Draymond Green is back normal. He's just a normal citizen <laughs> within the Warriors. <laughs> the guy, uh, what's in the Andrew Wiggins is non-existent. The bench, they've got a couple guys out. Kelly's out, was out the last game. Somebody just told them. Meniscus. James, James Wiseman is out now. With, with I think it was a meniscus tear or something like yeah, that. Yeah, tear. So I wanted to see what he would, how would he lead a team where you don't have a stack, a stack basketball team where you didn't, you didn't build up to this moment like you did. Uh, when, when you guys got drafted, he was along. It's, it's a lot of things that go in this formula. I want to see as a leader. I mean, they're still in the playoff hunt. They're still in the playoff yeah. hunt. They still have a bunch of young guys, and I think he's he's doing his best. One man can't, you know, win <laughs> win a game. But, I mean, I, what I've seen so far from Clay, I mean, not Clay, sorry, from Steph, man, what a leader. He's a great guy. Everybody loves him. He's a scorer. I mean, what a career to pass. The great Wilt Chamberlain, man, that's no small feat. Uh, what else can you say about Steph Curry? The, the guy is yeah. phenomenal. The guy is phenomenal. It, it changed. It, it gets, changed the way it we gets see to basketball. Point. Yeah, yeah, really, really changed. That's what that's what I was about to get to. It has really changed the way we see basketball because there, just the fact of what a, a good shot is for a point guard is it's viewed a lot differently from what he's done. Also, what Damian Lillard has done. Um, do you feel as though, like, when we look back, like? 10 to 15 years from now, do you think Steph is going to be one of the guys that we look at as just maybe not even just a trailblazer from the point guard position, but just a trailblazer from any position that we've ever seen in the NBA? I think so, because before uh, Steph came, I was I want to say Clay. I, I like Clay too. I want to say Clay so bad. But before we saw Steph Curry and his greatness and how he changed the game beyond the arc, we looked at Reggie Miller as the best shooter ever. And I think yeah. no one will surpass what Steph Curry has done his career as a, a Golden State Warrior, no one will surpass that. No one will come close to what he did for the game of basketball. And a lot of people think it's gone to the worst. Everybody's shooting. I think it was the Denver Nuggets. They had opportunity to drive to the hole. And everybody's at the three-point line instead of trying to finish <laughs> at the rim. You know, it's a lot had a of, wide open layup. <laughs> wide open layup, but they, you know, it's a you know the good, the bad, and the ugly of what the game and what the the, the league is going to. But I don't think anybody will. What he's done, not as just as a point guard. I don't look at him as a point guard. I think he could play every position, even center position, if if he if willing. If most of the was willing to, to put him at center, but I don't think anybody would surpass or do what he he has done in the league so far. Yeah, for sure. And, and dealing with the Warriors, also just being like like you were saying, still in the playoff hunt. Um, with the recent news this past Sunday of, of James Wiseman being out for the season uh, due to the tear. Um, to the meniscus in his right knee. And this is, you know, another season altering, altering injury um, that they've had to deal with. Um, there's been a lot of up and down play with them. Um, you know, they had the comeback win versus Milwaukee 
last Tuesday, but then have the blown lead late night, um, a late against the Wizards on Friday night. And, you know, Steph in his recent game, uh, games back has averaged 36.8 points and 7.2 uh, rebounds. But in terms of them staying in the playoff mix, you've got Dallas at 7, Memphis at 8. Um, I-, I believe San Antonio's at 9. I'm not sure if I have that right. San Antonio 9 or Golden State at 10. But in terms of 7 through 10, like, where do you think Golden State, like, you feel as though in the play-in tournament, um, Golden State could have pretty good odds to get through, or do you still think one of those other teams would have a better shot um, to, to get past them? I think they'll pass Memphis at eight. Uh, Dallas is at number seven. I think they're, they'll stay put at 30, uh, 30, 30 games, 24. Portland Lakers, mm-hmm. I don't see them going past any of those other teams. I think they'll pass Memphis. If they have a, a late surge, I, it, it's a possibility they can pass Dallas, but I think Dallas is playing pretty good pretty good for the um, this last-minute stretch. So I, I I do think that I think they, they will make the playoffs, but they'll probably be the eight seed. I think they I think they'll pass Memphis, and then they'll try to. I mean, they won't go far. <laughs> Obviously, I yeah. mean, if Clay comes back, that'll be a miracle. <laughs> but we, yeah, we don't <laughs> foresee that obviously because he's out for yeah. the, the remainder of the season. But you know, it can happen. What I think is uh Angels and Alvin, it can happen. I don't think at this point <laughs> it could happen. But no, um, I mean, you would have a Utah, you would have a Utah Golden State series in the first round, and you know, even though Utah would be heavily favored, still having to see a healthy Steph, that that skill is going to be a defensive nightmare for for even an elite team like Utah. Oh, for sure, and I think they're banged up. I think they're banged up, and they don't have the, that that long bench that they they normally have. Is not not a lot of guys coming off the bench and giving them buckets and, and giving them points, and you know, adding to. The, I guess what they need to do on the court, but they will lose <laughs> in a, in a series oh, yeah, against sure. Utah for sure. But I think Clay, not Clay. See, I want to say Clay. <laughs> you want to say Clay? I want to see worry, Clay I mean, play. The second, the, the second half of this year, twenty twenty one, we're gonna see we're gonna see Clay back at the beginning of the season. You can say say his name as much as you want. <laughs> right. I still want Clay to leave though. I still want him to leave. I still want him to show people that he's. I mean, evidently, it's making a. A strong point that Clay is the heart and soul of the Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. and they still well. They still have Draymond. They still have Steph. They still have some other key players, if you want to call them key players. But I think without Clay Thompson, you can see what uh, what the team is is left with. But eventually, and we, why they were so optimistic, and why they were so optimistic for the season that this was going to be a comeback year for them because of especially Clay Clay's return. Right, and we we don't we don't get to see him return. Back-to-back years, but, uh, man, uh, when he does return, I think he's going to be a tear for everybody. But I definitely think they'll lose to Utah, but Steph will will give them a run for their money. I I love the experience they have. They've been in tough situations. I don't think they've been the underdog just yet uh, mm-hmm. in a series or in the playoffs. So it'll be very interesting what they will do, how they will come out. Because it's not the bubble. They don't have any no, uh, special circumstance they can get riled up about, you know, they they probably be the AC and I really want to see if they if they do become the AC, I really want to see how they they come out and play Utah. Because now for the first time in a long time, they're the underdog. And how Steve Kerr approaches this as yeah. the underdog. Because for this is the first time he's gonna be coaching an underdog team. I mean, like back in 2017, 26, 2016, we could have we could have, you know, never imagined we'd be talking about Golden State as, as heavy underdogs. <laughs> right. Never. <laughs> never. It had to be some guys that left. And like the key guys like Clay or Steph or whatever, somebody leaving and be like, okay, maybe there's an underdog now, but yeah, a bunch of injuries. Absolutely. Well, um, transitioning to, to Jamal Murray's um, just, just an extremely tough season ending injury and how big of an impact this will, will have on the Nuggets playoff run. Um, this injury took place in the closing moments of the Warriors game. And um, this is a, a torn, a, a anterior cruciate ligament with a, a surgical repair soon to come. Um, the rehabilitation period can last anywhere from nine to 12 months and a full return could be a half year beyond that. Um, Murray was in the middle of, you know, one of his best seasons averaging 21.2 points, 4.8 assists and four rebounds along with 41% from the three. And we were talking about, um, I, I believe in, in the last episode of the one before how we still felt, felt as though this team had as good of a title chance as any team in the West um, with the healthy Jamal Murray saw what they did in the bubble last season and how, they were able to get, you know, just so far to the conference finals and have some competitive games against the Lakers. Um, but what are your initial thoughts on this extremely unfortunate injury and you know how this can possibly set back the Nuggets um, significantly significantly in their playoff run? Whoa. Like, 
I read. I think I got a notification like Jamal Murray's out for Cena Tories. Oh wow! Goodness. And we were just talking about that. I think the last couple uh, podcasts about the, the inconsistent and where do we see them going and who who are still waiting for it to get over that hump of being inconsistent and be the guy that we saw in the bubble was Jamal Murray. Now, now he has to come back from an injury and it's extremely difficult to come back from an ACL tear. It's a lot of players have that have done it, but it's still I think it still has that wear and tear on your mental. And as well as your body trying to get back into the swing of things, will he be the same player he was before the injury? But now you look at a team, we, we look for Jokic. You said this right before the podcast started. You said, well, Jokic is the guy who, who can win a series or take a team through an entire series, not the entire NBA Finals, but who can Yeah, who not can the win. entire, but at least a series. Yeah, at least a series. And I think I think that with Aaron Gordon, he almost had a double-double last night or the, the last game. He's just looking good. I mean, him and uh, Cal Lowry's beef is super funny. I don't know if, you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you've been following that or not. Beef is, is, is still relevant. It's still heated up. <laughs> <laughs> they play each other in a couple uh, a couple of weeks, I think, to see if they keep that same energy on the basketball court. Just keep it strictly basketball and deal with that stuff outside. Of, keep what's outside of basketball outside of basketball. But I- I'm looking for a couple of guys like Eric Gordon to step up. Michael Porter Jr., he had 25 points in the last game. He looks good, 10 for 14, 3 from 6 from the three-point line, 2 for 2 from the uh, free throw line. I love what we're seeing out of him is a guy that was highly sought of when he came out of college. And now let's see what you can do. Probably get back into the rotation. And then Jokic is going to be Jokic, man. He's going to he's gonna be before yeah. 20 and just go get himself. He's going to be that guy. Putting up Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robinson numbers. Right, which is, whoa, that's, that's high <laughs> that's praise. A, that's a statement. <laughs> yeah, what? That is high. <laughs> that's a statement that I have. Yeah, and, and I mean, we were just talking about, you know, uh, recently, how the Clippers we feel we feel as though like if, if they were in a series, we would still take Denver. Obviously, that changes a, a lot of things. Like, do you think like how much does this change like the West hierarchy? Like, would you still would you still say it's like Lakers, Utah, Clippers, or, or in some in some type of category like that? Mm. I mean, I wouldn't. I would. I, I'm still not really. I, I still don't trust the, the Utah a lot. <laughs> I'm still not going to go. I, I'm hearing into your voice. The, the more and more we go, I'm like, Utah. nah. But they're number one, 41 to 14, man. I mean, Phoenix is a, a two, well, a half, one and a half games behind. I don't know. I've, I've been looking at Utah, man. I think Utah's going to stay put. I've been looking at Utah. Mm. I, look, I definitely bro, think they'll secure the, the number one seed. Now, if the late, if Braun and AD come back in time and make a run, but I don't foresee, I don't think they're going to rush them. They make the playoffs regardless. I don't think anybody will, they, they're going to make the playoffs, but I think, if anything, they're going to save them for the playoffs. Um, yeah, you don't want that's to the smarter energy. play. Yeah, the smarter play. I mean, you're going to you're going to clinch a spot for the playoffs, so don't do it. But I think Utah, out of all the seeds, I think Utah's going to stay put for sure. As long as the Lakers avoid the play-in tournament, that's the number one thing. Like, <laughs> avoid, avoid the play-in tournament because you don't want to get in a situation where you possibly get bounced. I I, I don't foresee that they're, they're going to get put in that position, but I definitely think that they'll conserve energy. Um, but in, uh, another, you know, uh, breaking uh, uh, story that came out today was Lamarcus Aldridge re- retiring from the league. Um, was, you know, was playing with an irregular heartbeat um, that he said uh, last week. And you know, this is health concerns are, are so high when you have a situation like that. You have to think about your own future. You know, he just ca- came to, to Brooklyn, and this is obviously just an abrupt, uh, uh, sudden uh, story. But in terms of this, like. What are your thoughts looking back at um, his career and, and what he's done? Like 15 years in the league, Amy Lillard mm. feels as though, you know, Portland should retire his jersey. I, I personally feel as though that was his best fit back in Portland. But yeah. what are kind of your thoughts on what um, LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, his career will kind of be remembered as? Yeah. One of the most low-key basketball players you'll ever, ever see. And I think he, he follows on a lot of Tim Duncan. And they call yeah. Tim Duncan the big fundamental because he's not a flashy guy. He's going to, he's going to do his job. <laughs> he's going to get you buckets when you need him. He's going to play good defense. And he's going to be that steady, consistent guy. And I think that's Lamar, right. Lamarcus Aldridge. And we've seen him with uh, the Portland Trailblazers for the many, many years. And him with the Spurs, too. He had a, a good stint with the Spurs, too, as well. But what a career. One of the lo- most low-key guys you'll ever see play basketball. He didn't talk much. He, led ba- he played basketball to the, the, to the fundamental tee. But man, what what a crazy ending! You know, we, we thought 
he was going to add fuel to the fire what Brooklyn is trying to do. And now you, you find out that you don't want to end your career with a, with a, you know, injury, not injury, but something like that. You want to end off with a bang, but life happens yeah. and you, you figure out, well, my family is more important and my life is more important than basketball. So what a career. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, transitioning to the NFL and thoughts on Julian Edelman's retirement and just the, the amazing playoff performer he was for New England um, this past Monday after a 12-year career with the Patriots, going from um, a seventh-round pick to a Super Bowl MVP. His overall catalog includes 620 catches for 6,822 yards and 36 touchdowns. And you know the work he put in the postseason was really where he separated himself as he ranks um, second in NFL history with 118 postseason receptions. Um, behind only Jerry Rice, who has 151. Um, but looking back at his career, like how do you think Julian Edelman will be remembered? Um, you know, as he was just you know one of the most reliable receivers New England ever had, um, and he gained the permanent trust of Brady throughout their time together. You know, there's a. I think Julian Edelman Edelman was a good wide receiver. I think he's one of those guys who's going to do his job. And I think he, he's not one of those flashy guys. He worked his way up from special teams. Then, he, like you said, got the trust of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and, the, and everybody, Josh McDaniels. So I think he did everything correctly. Now, I know you didn't ask him this question. I do not think he's a Hall of Famer, Wellington. I do not. do not think okay. he's a Hall of Famer, but I think he was a good football player. He was an ideal football player. Not not stature or height, but his, his IQ, his drive, his the, the dog he had in him. He was a winner. And he made things happen, like the big catch he did with the Atlanta Falcons on the off the feet of the defender. Huge. That's huge. That's not an ordinary play from a wide receiver. But he he stepped up to the plate. But I do not think he's a Hall of Famer. If he becomes in the Hall of Fame, Chad Ochocinco will get his snubbed. Heinz Ward is definitely getting snubbed. Sterling mm-hmm. Sterling Sharp is definitely getting snubbed. If Julian Elliman gets into the Hall of Fame, something. But he will yeah. be, but yeah. Go ahead. I mean, there's so many other guys, like you said, like top tier players that 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 should be given that nod as well, because that's what that's what happens whenever you have a, a Hall of Fame um, acceptance. It, it goes too well. Who was the other guy that should have, you know, been included as well? It, it, there's so many circulating questions. I, I definitely think, like you said, he's had amazing uh, catches and amazing performances in the biggest games, uh, a few Super Bowls, but. Like you said, there still are other players, top of the line players that you just can't you can't look the other way in terms of not giving them the nod, but giving Edelman the nod, even though he's had um, an outstanding career. Exactly, and I'm not taking anything for Julian. What a phenomenal career! I don't think he's done. I think he he does what Gronk did. Yeah, <laughs> because they were releasing him anyways. Patriots releasing him anyway because he failed. Uh, I think uh, some type of test. I don't know if it was drug related or physical or whatever, but he filled it. Then he re- announced his retirement. But I think somebody's going to, I think they're going to pick him up. And that's what, because uh, Gronk's like, I give him about, you know, four weeks until he's here with yeah. him. I know he was playing, but I, I foresee that being an option because AB hasn't signed with him yet. Mm. Tony O'Brien yeah, hasn't absolutely. re-signed. He's still trying to structure his, restructure his deal, but I think Edelman comes and swoop in and become the wide receiver. That's my hunch. I don't know. Good, good press. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but uh, before we move on, we're, we're just a couple weeks away from the NFL draft. You know, Justin Fields, his stock has kind of went down a little bit. Um, you also really? have the situation with the 49ers. Well, I'm not for, for, from circulating news. It, it shouldn't. I feel as though he may not be kind of like one of the highest picks. San Francisco has the third pick. And, and a lot of people are saying that he's going to they're going to take. Uh, Mac Jones and obviously Trevor Lawrence is the projected number one pick. Like, is there one quarterback or maybe just one player in the draft um, as we're two weeks away from it that kind of like has your attention before you get to that point? You know what? I, I was that's why I was like, and what his stock is going? Justin Fields. I think he will fit perfectly with the 49ers with their scat yeah, backs. I would like, think that would be a great pick. Exactly. Mac Jones. You already have a quarterback like uh, Jones, which is Jimmy Garoppolo. You want. You want a guy who's mobile, who can extend the play. Jimmy doesn't do that. Matt Jones can't do that, to be honest. We've seen (laughs) that. He's had a wide-open guy, and he has a a phenomenal offensive lineman led by Alex Leatherwood. (laughs) So he didn't have to extend the play most of the time. He had a good running game. He had good wide receivers, good tight ends, a great offensive line. I don't think he can extend plays in the NFL. Justin Fields can. 
and I think his accuracy is way better than Jones. And I think he has that that how to. Then he ran a, a, a I think it was a four 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 in the forty four mm-hmm. four four five. Yeah. Speed, come on! I think he fits perfectly with 49ers. I'm high on Justin Fields. I don't want to make the same mistake I did with Deshaun Watson because I wasn't high on him. I was high on Lamar. Right. So I think Justin Fields is a better Deshaun Watson to me. Accuracy mm-hmm. from accuracy from pocket presence from just uh, all around toughness. I think he's he could be a starting quarterback, starting NFL quarterback right off the bat. And um, if 49ers pass on him and get Jones, something is wrong because you already have that type of quarterback already in Jimmy. So you it's just a- getting the, a younger version. It's getting a younger, a younger version of Garoppolo. And I don't think they need that. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they need that. Um, but uh, now transitioning to our first album review um, and, and Joyce Rice's uh, overgrown review, uh, overgrown debut and just the thoughts on the harmony of her proper understanding of emotion. Um, this debut album from the LA Singer released last month um, highlights how she doesn't want um, indecisiveness in her world or even relationships. Um, she shows a lot of self-preservation. And for most de- your, uh, debuts, there can be just included naiveness and, and youth for um, attributes in relationships. But experience and wisdom is what she carries with her in this project. Um, she has standout features like Freddie Gibbs, West Side Gun, and uh, Lucky Day. Um, but overall, like, what are your thoughts on an album like this from Joyce Rice where you know she's kind of remaking her own hip-hop and R&B formula of her predecessors in her own image? Hmm. I was, you know, I'm still trying to kind of figure out what type of vibe she has. And I, I yeah. think her production is amazing. I think her voice is amazing. I think the way she infuses hip hop and R&B uh, simultaneously, I think that's really dope. But I'm still trying to figure out the vibe. What do I get from her music? And I'm still, I'm still trying to figure that out. But I, I yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. I, it, it wasn't hard yeah. to listen to it, but it was it was more so of like just, okay. Pinpoint, is, pinpoint yeah. what she's going to be for the next five years. Exactly, because, I mean, we, we see multiple people, we see multiple people, uh, multiple artists infuse R&B hip-hop before, and they do not last long. <laughs> in this industry and they, yeah. they will have to change they all have to change certain things about i don't know if she I, this is what i'm that's what i'm trying to pinpoint or they're just gonna have to pick a side they're, they're gonna have to yes. pick up uh, uh, uh just, just pick up which one do you want to stick with and go with it and 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 it's actually going to be your niche yeah so for example for people it was like oh give us an example look at bryson tiller's not an r&b artist he's he's a rapper mm. bryson tiller's a rapper Brent Fias. R&B singer. Mm-hmm. And people clear it, distinction. Yeah, clear distinction and you will say he influ- he infuses hip hop and R&B, but it's mostly R&B how he constructs his music is 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 different. You it's, you can it's night and day with those two artists. Um Kalani, R&B. Mm-hmm. She's an R&B, yeah. but she can she can rap a little bit, but she doesn't straddle the line. It's definitely R&B for her. So that's when I'm trying to figure out what direction she's going to go into later down the road. It's cool to do that because that's what's now the the, the pop rap and the, the R&B mixed together like Drake and other, a bunch of other artists do. But what's your direction going down the road? You will eventually have to pick a side because that's how the game yeah. is. That's how music is. You have to pick a side because there, there's never a time where you can't when you can just like be in between. I only think I, I kind of feel like uh, what you said with Bryson Tiller is just so accurate because some people can say, "Oh, well, he's in, he's infusing R and B into hip hop," but he you really can tell if you listen to ninety five percent of his music, you're gonna, your biggest takeaway is that he's a rapper, and and and, and there's no other way you, you you can even look at it a different side or, or deny that. Yeah, even oh, what's a, what's a good song? Even "Right My Wrongs." That's still a rap. Right. That's still a rap rap song to me. <laughs> he's he's. It's certain songs that be like, okay, it's borderline. Okay, he can pass for R&B, but most of his stuff is straight rap. And his writers who write for him rap, I mean, write like they're rapping. Because he he, yeah. he has, a, uh, has a good team around him. And if you look at the lyrics and see how many people help write the songs, it's about four or five people, including himself. So, I mean, he has a good team that writes, I feel like, as a rapper than an R&B singer. But Brent Fias, his music is straight R&B to me. 
but he's a different R&B artist in his own right, but it's still straight R&B. But I'm trying to figure out what she's trying to do. But the, the features, Freddie Gibbs, that song was fire. That song is crazy. Freddie Gibbs, That song is, is a repeat, man. Bro, the man, the man's gifted. Obviously, he's doing music this long. Yeah. The dude's, the dude's yeah. phenomenal, man. Do you think her, any of her, do you think that her features maybe outshined her a, a bit in this one? Or do you feel as though she she possibly carried her own? It's, I feel as though she has some, 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 for a debut album, she had some amazing features to have. I mean, Freddie Gibbs, like, he's in a kind of a sphere of his own. But what were kind of your takeaways on how she handled the features that she had on this project? You know, with I'll start with the Lucky Day one. Lucky Day is such a dope artist. Man, I love Lucky yeah. Day's music. But <laughs> I feel like she held her own in that one. And when it comes to, like, Freddie Gibbs, nah, Freddie Gibbs took the show. Nah, he took the cake. <laughs> yeah, he, he took that. Like, <laughs> his verse was fire. His verse was so It's crazy. Fire. <laughs> it was so fire. But, I mean, she's, still, she's not a bad singer, man. It's just... Savon's going to be playing that on the speakers in the interlude. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, don't give away the secrets, man. Come on. Just gotta, <laughs> don't give away. But, man, I just want to figure out what she's going to do later down the road. Wh- which side is right. she going to choose? And I know yeah, I have. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure it's going to be R&B. Oh, yeah. You, you, I, I, I definitely get that sentiment and just, like, overall, overwhelming feel. That's kind of, like, the direction she wants to lean toward. Yeah. Me too, um, but uh, transitioning to our second um, review, album review, and Queen uh, Nyjah's Misunderstood. Um, Misunderstood is her debut album from last October. And, you know, she's referenced um, many times that she's felt like an outsider growing up and in, in the world of fame. Um, the authentic talent um, Queen Nyjah has is challenged through raw emotion, um, in- including 18 tracks. And she's displaying just great talent, even a, a higher level of potential. Um, the intro to me just really epitomizes yeah. You know, obviously how many people have talked about her the last couple of years, but how she can mix with other rappers and soul musicians like Lil Durk, um, Lucky Day, uh, Kiana Lede, and Russ convey such a deep range of talent. But um, kind of like, what were your thoughts on this project and how she tried to silence some of the naysayers that weren't um, unanimously accepting of her sound? Hmm. I did not know who she was until a couple weeks ago. Disclaimer. They know who she was. Mm. A good friend of mine let me hear a song called Butterflies Part Two. What a track. What a track, man. Crazy Ooh. track. Crazy. I love it. I've never heard a concept in that manner before. I still get butterflies mm-hmm. even when we argue. That's crazy. Who says yeah. that? I'm not getting no <laughs> butterflies when I'm mad at you. I'm mad. <laughs> but it was such a dope concept that it made you think like, yo, you, hey, you, I still love you when I'm when I'm mad at you. So that maybe that you know what I'm saying? it makes you think I love that. I love the concept. And then she has some dope, 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 dope features from Wale to uh J.I. the Prince of New York. I, I like his music. Um obviously uh Ari, Ari Lennox. Ooh, that's my baby. That is my lady. <laughs> you are my lady. I'm telling you, bitch, that's my baby. <laughs> but no, this this whole album was dope. I love the intro. It kind of scared me though, the little static. Where's where's Queen Audrey? Like it was kind of scary a little yeah. bit though, but it was such. Yeah. I think it was needed, and I think when people ask about you and people think you fall, fall fell off or something, you're in the conversation. That means you're in the right spot. You where you're supposed to be as an artist. Because if nobody's talking about you, <laughs> that's the thing. If if nobody if if, if everybody just kind of has the same opinion of you. And there's no differences, like nobody ever nitpicks your album or says that mm-hmm. you've fallen off in some type of way. Yep. It really shows that you're not at the progression or e- even even the level that you should be trying to strive towards. Because if you're getting nitpicked, that means it, there's something that you are doing right, but some people they're not they're not seeing it right now. And they, they can't see the one the one hundred percent full picture of it right now. Talk talk it well it's because we just talked about LMA. Nobody's talking right. about LMA. That's why I'm, she's going to get lost issue. in the mix. And when people talk about your music, like, oh, she fell off, or this and this and that, man, you're in the right spot. Because one, they're going to listen to it regardless because they want to know if you got back to their standards or, you know what I'm saying? It's, it brings the traction. They're going to gravitate to your music because one, 
like I said, they want to feel like you back to who you used to be or you doing this and that is going to attract people. And now your music is going to sell. Now you're going to be back in the light. Blase Blase, the album was dope from top to bottom. Top oh, yeah. to bottom. She's, she has an amazing voice. She can straddle with the, the, the rap side as well. I don't know if you noticed that. But she's mostly oh, yeah. R&B. Like, I heard another song. I was like, that's, who was that? She was like, oh, that's Queen Najee. That's her too? And she was flowing. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. I got to listen to more of her music. That's why I mentioned it last week. I was like, man, we got to do a Queen Najee um, a review. But, yeah, this album, Butterflies Part 2, was definitely my favorite. I don't mm. know the songs. I just love the concept. And just who gets butterflies when they're mad at somebody. And, like I know you, you said you want to fall in love again, but you you made it like it's just dope. Like I mean, yeah, bro, that was it. Yeah, that's, that's dope. That was dope. Absolutely, this, this was definitely a breakout type of a debut. Um, and in terms of like, I feel like the last four albums we've reviewed have been <laughs> debuts. Actually, looking back at it, right? They've all been they've all been debuts. In terms of a debut, um, uh, before we get the second half of the show, it, it is. How do you view it? Like, do you feel as though it has to be something that is unforgettable, or do you think it has to be kind of the start of something that can be just kind of the tipping point of possibly a great career and something that can be built on? I think so. I think when you don't want your debut album to be, I know this may sound so dumb, like stupid fire. You don't want it to be mm. a too crazy, then now you don't have where to How can progress. you top it? Yeah, per, top it, and we yeah. see, I hate to use Bryson Tiller again. Bryson Tiller, his first debut album, which he pushed dope for years, like two years, was so fire that we dismissed, yeah, we dismissed all his other musics, but it, this, the, the album he dropped, the, the five, fifth anniversary, whatever the crap is, I love that. I think mm -hmm. it's really yeah. dope. That's amazing. But it took him five years for us to accept his new music. That's crazy, right? You don't want it to be too fire that we you have you put we have high expectations now and you can't exceed or come close to those expectations. So you want your debut album to be good enough for people to know who you are and have room for improvement. Now you'll have a direction. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't want it to be too fire and then once you drop something else, we're like, nah, it was it's not the same as the first one. We don't like it. We're just gonna shun shun you away. So Debut albums are important, but you don't want to be you don't want to have it too fire to where people are not rocking with your, your the other music you drop because you this album was too stupid crazy. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with our silence of the lamp. Welcome back to the show, and now we're getting into our view of The Silence of the Lambs, and we're joined by a special guest, um, Aaron James. He was on uh, last year uh, for one of our reviews of Heat, um, a good friend of mine and good friend of the show, and, and just a, always a, a great guest for us to have. Um, Aaron, thanks for being back on, sir. Man, it's good to be back on with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And to start with our overview of The Silence of the Lambs, um, The Silence of the Lambs is a 1991 American detective psychological thriller film directed by Jonathan Demon, written by Ted Talley, adapt, adapted from Thomas Harris' 1988 novel, starring Jodie Foster as Clarence uh, Starling, a young FBI trainee who was hunting a serial killer, Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine, who skins his female victims. Um, to catch him, she, she seeks the advice of the imprisoned Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, a brilliant psychiatrist and cannibalistic serial killer. Um, the Silence of the Lambs also features performances from Scott Glenn, Anthony Held, and Cassie Lemons, um, it had a budget of 19 million and brought in 272.2 million in the box office, and also had a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's also the third film to win Academy Awards in all the top five categories: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Along with being the only Best Picture winner, widely considered a horror film. Um, but to start it off, Aaron, what are your initial thoughts of the film, and also it being a film that you know we rarely see actually gets all the recognition it deserved? You know, the thing that I remember most about the film was how intriguing it was. Um, it's not a film that's like fast paced, you know, it, right. it's not a bunch of action or anything like that. But the manner in which the dialogue, particularly between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice, um, 
their interaction, I found to be very intriguing. And it was one of those movies that just kind of sticks with you, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, as a psychological thriller, it really moved beyond simply just trying to be scary. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt like it pushed a lot deeper than that. And uh, when when films have the capacity to do that, that they they're not simply just frightening, but they take you on a mental journey <laughs> as right, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely uh, found it very intriguing. And those are the things that stuck out to me initially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Savon, to you, kind of like what were your initial thoughts of it as well as, you know, Aaron was mentioning, it, it was a very methodical film, not not really fast paced, but, but just really <clears> slow <throat> and properly. Anthony Hopkins <laughs> played <laughs> this role to a T. And it really kind of freaked me out being younger watching his movie, Paul and Clarice. Like, I, like that always haunted me how he said it. And then the slick hair, like, why is your hair so slick in jail? Or solitary, where you're at. But no, I thought it was, like like Aaron said, a great film, was slow paced. It made you think mentally. I think it was more suspenseful than anything else, but it had a great storyline. What a film. And Jodie Foster did not disappoint either. She did so, not. A- A-list performance. Yes, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, transitioning to our first topic from one to four stars, what would you give it? Um, I definitely would give it four as this was, you know, s- such a smart and sharp thriller, having the balance of psychological study and all out horror. Um, and, you know, as we've mentioned, the undeniable performances from Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster just take this over to another space. Um, but to you, Aaron, from one to four stars, what would you give it? And, and kind of what are some of your reasons um, for giving it that rating? Definitely a a four. Um, I remember when this film debuted and it freaked everybody out, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, you know, uh, you know, just to date myself a little bit, I remember when the first, um, Nightmare on Elm Street film debuted, right? I remember, I remember watching that as, as a kid and being scared out of my mind, but there is something about, being frightening without a supernatural element, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, This film was able to tap into that by dealing with the human psyche and, and what human beings in their depravity are capable of. And it's that type of dynamic that's very thought provoking because it is absolutely within the realm of possibility, right? But it's also rooted in the realm of reality in the things that we have seen play out uh, in real life, right? Throughout yeah. history. And so the way they that, that they brought that particular element together and how impactful it was, definitely a four, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Savon, uh, to you from one to four stars, uh, what would you give it? Definitely four stars. I'm very interested. Uh, what did Rotten Tomato give this movie? Just ninety six percent. Okay, okay, that's that's is, is that a that's, it, yeah? It, 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 they you put the thumbs right. up. Yeah, yeah thumbs, thumbs up. up. <laughs> you can't see it, but thumbs up because Rotten Tomato just. You know, Aaron, every time we do a every time we do a movie <laughs> review, Savon has to prove if Rotten Tomatoes got it right or not. Because some shaky ratings, they get some shaking ratings, shaky ratings at times. It's just, sometimes it's just yeah, that's true. Grind my gears, man. Sometimes it's like I'm okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get riled up while you say this one. But now four stars from the actors, from the storyline, from the, the script, from the director, everything. It moved like fluently. I love this film. It made you it made you fearful of it, but it made you more like it, it you dove into it a little more because it was so interesting. And he's helping catch these other serial killers, but as well as just you just realize how crazy he is and smart he is at the same time. So it's kind of you know, mm, yeah, you don't know about this guy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, transitioning to our second topic, um, favorite character. Um, I, I would go with Hannibal Lecter as there was a rogue and vill- villainous nature wrapped into one, and he accomplishes so much and, and not even a lot of uh, a large amount of screen time. And along with the calm demeanor, he has just the defining characteristic of being a brilliant psychiatrist and, and constantly getting into, uh, inside Clarice's head. Um, throughout the film, but uh, to you, Aaron, who was kind of your favorite character? Oh, Hannibal Lecter. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm. I have a feeling that this might be unanimous, right? Yeah, unanimous. I but, feel like, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know what Savon's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like you said, you have this character again. He's not 
he he doesn't possess this overpowering physical strength, right? Mm, yeah. He's a brilliant mind. He's savvy. He's cunning, you know, and and you you don't know what angle he's taken. And, you know, if you watch this film, you know, more than once even, you know, as you get into the movie, it's like sometimes, you know, the way that it, you feel like you're sitting there on yeah, the other exactly. side instead of Clarice. You know what I'm saying? It's like, he's interrogating and, you. <laughs> and, you know, man, Hopkins is just such such a genius because we've seen we've seen actors portray characters in such a way that they become like a staple in culture right and and I, and that's what he did with Hannibal Lecter you know i mean you fast forward years and years later the funny episode uh, uh that that scene in the office you know where they're supposed to be learning cpr and and dwight cuts the face off of the the cpr dummy and he's like you know clarice you know <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and instantly everybody knows what he's talking about yeah they know the know? reference everyone knows that reference um he was absolutely brilliant the way that he portrayed hannibal lecter and even though you're watching him and he gives you chills right it's this right. it's this character that you're just like man i would never ever want to encounter someone like that in real life there's this intrigue that Hopkins brought to this character, you know, that even though he was frightening, he was very intriguing and you want kind of wanted to see what would happen next with him. And so um, Hannibal Lecter, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Savon, are you going to make this a, a unanimous, a unanimous no. favorite character? No, no, no. Oh, no. It's going like to break it off. It's going to break it off. I love Clarice. I love Clarice. <laughs> I love how everybody's warning her about Hannibal Lecter. I feel like their relationship, I mean, it ties into Hannibal Lecter. So, but I just like how she holds her on and she's, she has like this, in, this mysterious stuff from her childhood and she fits his role and she not, she's not going to back down. And I think Hannibal Lecter took a liking to her because we'll, we'll get to those, uh, those quotes. But I know, I, I don't know. I like Clarice more than I like Hannibal. Hannibal was a, was a good one, but I think I like Clarice. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah, for sure. Um, transitioning to most memorable scenes, um, I had closer where Lecter um, greets uh, Clarice when he learns he's an F FBI trainee. All good things to those who wait. Uh, Lecter offers to pr profile Buffalo Bill if Clarice will arrange his transfer to a cell with a view. Quid pro a quote scene where Clarice shares painful memories and for Lecter's psychological insights. Um, what does he do, this man you seek? Lecter helps Clarice analyze Buffalo Bill's nature. And finally, the final conversation between Agent Starling and Hannibal, where after solving the Buffalo Bill case, uh, Agent Starling receives a chilling phone call uh, from Hannibal Lecter. Um, to you, Aaron, kind of like what was uh, maybe one or two of your most memorable scenes from this one? Okay, so the entire film takes place, and 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 the relationship between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter is is at the forefront, right? But yeah. but still undergirding that is their desperate search to find this vicious serial killer, right? And and so it it all culminates with her in this home in this pitch black room, and this guy's wearing NVGs, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they're in the room together. Man, I'm telling you, I've seen I've I've watched that particular scene multiple times. And it just every time, you know, especially because of my background and everything, it just sends me through the roof, you know, uh, mm -hmm. just 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 how that would play out. And and the manner in which they paced that sequence. Yeah, it wasn't too slow. It wasn't too fast. It was incredibly suspenseful. Yeah. And um, I thought it was masterful the way that they crafted that the way that it played out. It was definitely that scene because, you know. You know, you know, uh, the the pacing is good or, or the writing is good when you've seen the movie, and yet even when you go back and watch it, you feel just as much anxiety. Exactly. That, you know, the second, third, fourth time around as you doesn't did get the old. first. It doesn't get old. So definitely that scene, man, because you're like Clarice, he's behind you, girl. Turn around. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that scene, man, for me, hands down. Absolutely. Um, Savon, to you, kind of like what was uh, one of your most memorable scenes? The first meeting. The very oh, first yeah. meeting. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was something interesting, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think how he analyzed her so fast, I think she realized how 
smart he was and that she really needed his help. And then her, it was just a weird moment after that. And then the guy slung something on her, and I don't want to say it. And then she ran back and she put her face to the wall. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. Goodness. I thought it was so funny. But she was scene, like, what, what did I get myself in? What did I get myself exactly. in? Exactly. <laughs> and it set that that scene set up for everything else. And with that, I think he took a liking to her. And I will get when yeah. we get to the quotes, I'll I'll throw some quotes out there that kind of aligns with that. But I think the first meeting really kind of gave us what the movie was going to be about. Will that be about how it will be constructed to move from from there and there on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, transitioning to most memorable quotes, um, I had I tell you things, you tell me things, all good things for those who wait. Um, believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. He's a monster, pure psychopath, so rare to capture one alive. Um, and finally, most serial killers keep some sort of hope from their victims. Um, to you, Aaron, kind of like what was um, your most memorable quote from this film? Dude, I thought that they saved the best for last, okay? Um, when he's like, basically, um, I'm having an old friend for dinner. You're like, oh, hey, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to mention <laughs> yes. that one. That was, yeah. uh, look, man. That was a takeaway. That was a take, because, you know, that, that character that he ended up following, um, it, it was just kind of an unsavory, just kind of sleazy kind of way that he was portrayed, you know? Right. And, you know, he, he's, he's deceptive. He, he's not forthcoming. He's got his own agenda. Um, he's really not on Clarice's side. He's, you know, he, he's, he's trying to work his own thing. And, um, you know, as much as you don't like Hannibal Lecter as, as, as frightening as a character as he is, um, you know, you don't really feel bad for what he's about to do at the end, you know? Yeah, and so when he true. says, I'm having an old friend for dinner, you're like, hey, man. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, but to use uh, Savon, kind of like what was uh, some of your most memorable quotes from this one? Uh, I think the way they were talking, he was like, where are you, Dr. Lecter? He was like, I have no plans of calling you, Clarice. The world is more interesting with you in it. I thought that was... That's where it kind of mm. took me. He had a he had a good liking to her, and then he yeah. he really went in on her. <laughs> he was just like got this good bag on cheap shoes, you like a rub, a well scrubbed husking rub with a little oh, taste. Goodness. Like he was going in on going her. in. And then the one I the last one I like it was like how they were talking about why he skins his um uh his uh victims. And he was like uh, people like trophies from their victims. Is like I didn't. She was like no no. You ate yours. So I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> like, he really did eat people. Like, it was so funny. Yep. Like, you didn't keep trophies. You ate them. Like, it was just started with the brain. It was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, transitioning to what did you like the most about the storyline? Um, for me personally, I like how the film takes big risks and you know manages to succeed in almost every category. Um, for a horror psychological thriller to be equally thought-provoking along with being stylish is just rare to pull off. And it's... um. Just everything you could want in this type of genre. Uh, to you, Aaron, looking back at this one, what did you kind of like the most? I'm in mean, particular about the storyline. I love the evolution of Jodie Foster's character, Clarice. Right? Mm, um, yeah. Because you know, when we see movies like this in particular, uh, a lot of times what you get is the old, salty, you know, uh, seasoned law enforcement official, whether it be a Fed right. or local law enforcement or whatever. She's not even finished. She's not even graduated from the academy yet at Quantico. Mm -hmm. You know, they pull her out of training in order to assist um, in this investigation, in this pursuit. And so to see her go from like this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know, kind of naive character in some ways um to being someone who you know she's she's a lot more hip to the game like you see her develop um and and mature and you see her investigative prowess the way she puts two and two together the way that she observes things like particularly in the house uh, at the end when she recognized the moth and she she had seen that before because it was found that particular uh species was found in the mouth of of one of the victims mm -hmm. um I thought that was really impressive, you know, because when you, when, cause I don't know about you, but you know, the introduction to her, you're like, man, what's she going to do? You know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but by the time. Didn't seem like a threat. Over, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But by the time it's over, you're like, Hey, okay. All right. 
you know, and, and so I, I really, I really liked that. That was, that was probably, um, uh, my favorite things about her character and, and, uh, how the movie paced that and, and developed her character as it went forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Savon, to you looking back at this one, kind of like, what did you like the most about the storyline? Hmm. I think it was the the way they needed Hannibal Lecter and the way they saw him as an asset and as a true monster in itself. And they really needed him to kind of find Buffalo Bill. That he, I don't know, it was kind of crazy. Like he needed uh, Claire Reese more than she needed him in a way. Because then, exactly. if if I if I help mm. her, then you're gonna start giving me certain things. He's not a he's not a dumb guy. Obviously, he knew what he was getting into, and that leads right. into the other Silence of the Lambs and other movies that, um, the other the trilogies or whatever whatever case. But but yeah, him being super smart, him doing those things not for her, but you know for his game. And in the end, that he was doing it for himself. But I thought that was really dope. How uh, he was seen as an asset, but it's it, mainly as a monster. And it was kept like, you know, warning her, do not get close to him. He will, he will yeah. mess you up. Yeah. But. Definitely. Um, and before we get to our last topic, um, I, I was reading earlier that, that the American Film Institute actually ranked Hannibal Lecter as the number one movie villain of all time. And, you know, whether or not that's factually unanimously agreed upon, his performance, as, as we've all agreed, um, is spectacularly unnerving. And, you know, often just gives the role of a lifetime. But to you, Aaron, to start off, like, whether it be the first time or the latest time you saw this movie, did you think you were watching possibly the greatest villain ever, or did you just have the takeaway of it, of it just being a top tier performance? Um, it was, so I didn't have the feeling like, man, I'm watching the, you know, the, the greatest villain ever. Uh, yeah. Not that initially, but I tell you what though, it was like, I've never seen this before. Mm. It yeah. was incredibly yeah. unique. It's like, okay, we've seen a lot of scary stuff, but we've this is never different. come across something like this, someone like this. And so there was such a uniqueness to that character. I think that's what was initially one of the most jarring things about it. Um, because, you know, he, he, this guy, again, you know, we're talking about someone that intellectually was top notch. You know, we're not talking about yeah. someone, uh, you know, we're talking about someone that people would trust with their problems or issues. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. He's supposed to be the counselor. He's supposed to be the right. fixer. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yet he's and yet he is he's a supreme predator. Mm -hmm. Cloaked with this intellectualism and. um and this craftiness, man. And so definitely that, you know, that, um, but, but now in retrospect, I'm still hard pressed to think of a character more frightening than him. Mm. That's, that's a really good point. But yeah, the, 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 that, that is a really amazing point. Savon, kind of, kind of where are you at with it? Do you feel as though you were looking at um, like when you when your takeaway from it now after the, the the times you've watched it, do you feel as though you were looking at the greatest villain ever, or do you just think this was a top tier performance? Top tier performance because Thanos didn't come just yet, so I still think okay. Thanos is the okay. best villain ever. <laughs> like, that's just me. I don't think. Yeah, I was, we're watching this. I think I watched this when I was super young, obviously with my uh, my family and my dad. And I wasn't thinking like what else. I was just thought he was like super super creepy, but he was super smart. And they needed his help. That's all I knew. It was like, this guy ate people. <laughs> this guy <laughs> ate people. That's all I knew. But like looking back at it, I think he was a good villain, but I don't think I don't think the best villain. I don't think he was. I think he was I think he was crafty, he was super smart, and he, he knew the ins and outs. He was just waiting for an opportunity. I guess and, uh, the sm smartest and best could be different. Like smartest villain, best villain. I, I feel like that possibly could be two different categories as well. Because if we're talking about smartest villains, he's definitely right up there. Yeah, for sure. I think so too. But the best overall villain, no. That's kind of a stretch. Yeah, it's definitely a stretch. Yeah. Um, but transitioning to our last topic, ten years from now, do you think this will still be watchful and intriguing? And um, I definitely think it will, as you know, we're at the thirty-year anniversary of it, and it's still one of a kind. Just the top two characters leave um, indelible impressions, and this is a permanent, um, unmissable, and enduring classic. Um, but Aaron, after all the years that it's been out now. What do you think will continue to make this a watchable and intriguing film another decade for even newer viewers that haven't seen this? I think what will continue to make it relevant is 
you know, for instance, Savon mentioned Thanos, right? Right. If you go back and look at the writers and the way that they developed Thanos, it was almost based on it, it was it was it was rooted in psychology. Mm-hmm. It, it was rooted in in how the mind works and certain types of minds and these worldviews and and all of those things and and so you even see some of the some of the same traits in in Hannibal Lecter's character um, again because what made what made him intriguing again just to just to you know kind of the analogy or the comparison uh, between he and Thanos is that it, it wasn't their strength it was this this worldview, this mindset, this agenda that existed intellectually within their souls, yeah, that they had the the you know the the boldness and the just the the gall, the audacity mm-hmm. to bring the some of the deepest, darkest desires to bear on the rest of the world right um and, and so that dynamic will never get old. I think we as human beings will always find that intriguing because even if we look at historically uh, the the Joseph Stalins, the Adolf Hitlers, the Jeffrey Dahmers, the John Wayne Gacy's, mm-hmm. people that exist, you know, in that type of evil and darkness, um, people are still learning about them and reading about them. Uh, it, it's, it's always going to be intriguing, always. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Savon, to, to close it out, kind of what do you think will continue to make this um, a watchable and intriguing film? Mm, I think the dare, I mean, one, the awards they, they got for this. From so this many film, awards. Goodness. So many awards. They took, they took away the, they, they, they took away the entire show that night. Yeah. For sure. And I was like, God. Uh, side of the lamb, side of the lamb, side of the lamb. Every day, they didn't go too far from the stage. So, I think the the wars they got from this, I think um, the the performances, the storyline, the the background, how everything just fluently worked together. And Jodie Foster, from Jodie Foster to, um, well, I forgot the gentleman's name. I've, let me put some respect on his name, Sir Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> let me put some, let me put some respect on him. I just looked at it, and said Sir Anthony. Hopkins. <laughs> but no, from his performance, he really made this film from the slick back hair to the the just terrible looking face. Just looks like he constipated and smiling at the same time. I thought it was when, it just, when you think of Anthony Hopkins, you think of this film. I almost feel as though this is a film that almost kind of is just it, it's considered the peak of, of his entire career. You know, it's funny. No, I've, I've seen him yeah. play in other other movies, but yeah, like you just said, this is like I think. The, the top tier, top three movies he's ever been in. And he's been in some great films. But for this yeah, one, I think sure. it really, he, he, he ooh, sorry guys, uh, this role really made, I think made his career and people saw the range he had because he really played this role. Like really yeah, played this role. I wonder if this had an effect on him after the film because getting mm. into that, that, that role is extremely difficult to do. And to, to, to get out that role, because we, we've seen multiple actors, you know, have had to go to therapy uh, for certain roles. Yeah. I was about to get to depression. that. Yeah. So this role, what he had to do to get in this role, I just only could imagine what he did. Um, locking himself in a room or whatever the case may be to get into this mindset of this this character. But he played this to a T. I think his the character alone, Hannibal Lecter, will always be uh, known and people will gravitate to it. Yeah, definitely. And before we let you go, Aaron, I was about to mention that for you. Like, do you feel as though when a character like Anthony, I mean, Anthony Hopkins has a role like this, um, of that of that category, do you feel as though it can take, just maybe take away something from uh, an actor's energy going forward, or do you think it can add something to it? Like, where do you kind of stand in when you have a, a performance like this that can take away, like, a lot of energy for the rest of your career? I think so. Um he strikes me as an individual that takes the craft of acting very seriously. Yeah. Um, and I consider him one of the best to ever do it. And so preparing for a role like this, the things that you have to read, the, the, the material that you have to sift through, people that you have to listen to or consult just to get yourself into the mindset to portray that, to become that. Um, there's no way that that doesn't leave a lasting impression 
on you. Right. I bet I bet even to this day, if you asked him, I, I, if I was a gambling man, I would say he would just give an unequivocal yes, absolutely. That role left an indelible just impression on me. I, and and that, would just, that would just continue to last. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Aaron, it has been an absolute pleasure as always. We always enjoy having you on, just um, consistently giving great insights. Um, but thank you back. Uh, thank you for uh, being back on, sir. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps it up for tonight. I'm your host, Winsor Burns, along my counterpart, Savon Morris. This has been Full Scope. See you later.